Good morning, guys. I was raised in the church. Uh, I think I say this all the time. I've seen a lot of weird things in my day. Um, but one of the weird things I, I saw in church growing up was all these motivational posters kind of all over the place in hallways and Sunday school rooms and in pastor's offices. And, you know, it's kind of like a Christian version of Lisa Frank or uh, maybe a lot of Thomas Kincaid stuff with, with inspirational quotes. But one of the posters I saw a lot growing up was Footprints. How many of you guys have seen Footprints before, the Footprints poster? Yes, the basic premise of Footprints is this guy has a dream, and it's kind of his life unfolding before him, and he's walking along the beach, and there's two sets of footprints in the sand, and, and during the hard times, there's just one set of footprints, and this guy's having the dream. He's like, what's the deal? He's, he kind of gets frustrated. God, what's up, man? Like, you bailed on me in the hard times. And God's like, no, man, you missed it. I was carrying you in the hard times. And he's like, whoa, mind blown, footprints. All right, there you go. Uh, another thing I saw a lot in, in, in churches was the starfish post. I mean, you guys have heard of the starfish story. If you, you guys may know it after I tell it. So starfish story. Um, there's the dude at the beach again. These things always happen at the beach. Um, guy at the beach and the, and, the, and the tides are washing up these starfish and they're going to die if they stay out on the shore because of the sun or something. And there's this guy that sees thousands of starfish and he's just one by one chunking them back into the ocean. And then some other guy comes up and is like, dude, you know you can't save all of them. What's the point? It's not going to make any difference. And the guy that's throwing the starfish looks at him. Bends down, picks up a starfish, chunks it back in the ocean. He's like, it made a difference to that one, bro. Boom. Starfish, right? Mic drop, starfish drop. Um, so you have the starfish thing. And another poster that I saw always uh, in churches, and I kind of lumped in with the starfish and the footprints posters, was this thing that's known as the serenity prayer. And the serenity prayer goes like this. It says, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. So God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. And I just kind of lumped all these things together because the decoration and all that was kind of the same. But the serenity prayer, uh, for those of you that know, is actually a staple and foundation for Alcoholics Anonymous. It's also something that when the guy wrote this prayer originally, they printed out in postcards and they, and they sent it to soldiers fighting in World War II as, as a means to kind of give them some perspective and clarity in the midst of their battles to say there's so much going on around you that, that's just crazy and chaotic and you can't control it um and so to try and control it would be um you know, impossible it actually create a lot of frustration and tension but there are some things within your power that you can control yourself your emotions um and in those moments act courageously so in the moments and things you can't change relinquish control and just um and things you can change and control act courageously and then pray for the wisdom to know the difference um and the guy that wrote this prayer originally the serenity prayer was a, a pastor and a seminary professor named Reinhold Niebuhr. Uh, Niebuhr and his brother, Reinhold and his brother Richard were both pretty prominent theologians in New York City. Uh, his brother wrote a book called Christ and Culture, which is a huge staple for me when I went through seminary and read How Does Christ Interact with Culture. Um, but Reinhold was this guy who, who was known um, in New York in that Union Seminary as a great philosopher and a great teacher. But in moments where things came up that, 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 that didn't sit right with him socially or in, in the community, he was active and he was engaged. For example, Personally, he was a pacifist. He didn't really believe in war. But when he started hearing reports and, and getting a glimpse at what Hitler was doing uh, in Germany, he's, he, he kind of shifted his personal view and said, this thing is so evil, this is so bad that we have to intervene. And he became an advocate uh, that, that the U.S. get involved in this war and, and stop what Hitler was doing in Germany. Uh, as soon as the war ended, he kind of went to the U.N. and was an advocate, hey, um, we need to not have punitive justice on Germany. We don't need to cripple them as a country because we'll just see this again. So we see a guy that has pretty nuanced theology, personally against war, but, but saw this great evil, became an advocate that we should be involved in this war, but once the war was over, said, but we need to have merciful justice with Germany, not punitive justice. He was an advocate um, there. 
He also saw a lot of uh, injustice and brokenness in labor laws in Detroit during the, the auto manufacturing era. And he, he, was, he was really uh, actively involved in trying to get labor laws passed and, and get, uh, get this, the living situations and the working situations for the workers in Detroit um, to be livable, to, be, to, to have justice and, and dignity. Um, he was an early opponent of the Vietnam War. Uh, before anyone really got on board and started being president, he was one of the early guys to oppose that. And he consistently uh, was a critic of the American culture and for Americans that viewed themselves as, as a, that viewed America as a type of Messiah for the rest of the world. He really attacked the arrogance and said, for us to operate in this way is actually sacrilegious and, and dangerous and harmful. We need to be careful in how we operate um, in the rest of the world. So you, as I go line for line, you guys may say, actually, I don't agree with this, 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 and that's fine. My overall point for, for Reinhold Niebuhr is that he thought his faith compelled him to be socially active and to be politically active and to be engaged in the, in the areas uh, of his community and his country and where he thought he might have influence and impact. Um, and even though the situations around him were massive, I mean, World War II is just this massive thing, right? Um, the labor law stuff, massive. Even though he may not be able to fix all those things, he did think that his voice held enough weight to, to have an influence. And he gave and lent his voice and his energy and his time and his resources to be actively engaged politically and socially. And that came from his faith. Now, when we go back to the serenity prayer, God give me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. When we look at that prayer, we, we, we almost immediately, maybe, I, for me as I wrestled with it and, and, and thought about it, I, I see the inerrant beauty and wisdom in this prayer. Because individually, there's so, so many frustrations and hurts and disappointments in my own life um, that are caused by things I actually have zero control over, which are pretty much 95, 99% of the things in this world I have no control over. Um, and so, so much of my pain, disappointment, suffering is caused by things I actually can't even change. Um, and in that, I can get so blinded by, and frustrated by that that I don't actually see the things that are within my power to change, namely myself, my opinion, my thought life, my, my, um, how I live my life. And so we can see the power of, of external circumstances being like kind of overwhelming us into an action. Life can get so daunting and so overwhelming that we become uh, overwhelmed to the point of shutting down or running away or becoming cynical. Um, and I think the serenity prayer gives us a tool uh, to process what actually can I change and, and give God give me the courage and the strength to keep pursuing that. So that's not only, but it's not only powerful internally or individually, it's also powerful uh, in the community sense and how we engage in the community around us. Not just our own personal demons, but also the brokenness we see in the world. Things can get so overwhelming that we say, what, what difference does it make if I, if I contribute or try to, try to solve this issue or not? And we can get overwhelmed into an action. But when we look at the serenity prayer and we apply it in the community sense, we can say, no, I actually do have a voice. I actually do have influence and energy and power to make some kind of impact in this situation. We saw Reinhold Niebuhr uh, do that in his life. And we're going to see Jesus in a second to see the story of how he does this in his life. But even if we can't fix or control everything, we can act courageously to make an impact. At times when I get overwhelmed by the, the gravity of what we see, this, this past weekend we saw a state trooper shot and killed um, in Richmond, and there's so much stuff going on internationally, um, and we just get overwhelmed by that and say, what difference can I really make? When, when I look at things and, and get a little overwhelmed, what I try to remind myself is that, hey, Jesus was like the greatest dude ever, the greatest teacher, leader, healer, reconciler ever, and he didn't fix everything. There's a lot of brokenness in his own time, and he didn't fix it all. But it didn't stop him from being courageous and involved in, in, in areas where he could. When he saw brokenness, he did run towards it and, and, and seek to bring reconciliation. But even he didn't fix it all. Um, and we see this in Matthew chapter 9. 
So Matthew chapter 9, Jesus just wrapped up the Sermon on the Mount. He spent a whole chapter and a half healing people. Uh, and then we get to this, this part in, in Matthew 9. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So Jesus is a great teacher. He's going around to every city and he's healing and he's preaching and he's leading. And he takes a step back and just says, man, there's so much need here. And he had, he said, the word there is he had compassion. The word compassion means he suffered with them. He, he suffered in their suffering. He was broken over their brokenness because they didn't have, they didn't have unity or leadership or, or direction. And so he felt compassion over the, the overwhelming brokenness that he experienced. So he kind of pulled back for a second and just said to his disciples, guys, the need is so big. The, the, the darkness and the brokenness and the pain and suffering this world are so big. And the people that are courageously living out this life that tries to bring about healing and reconciliation, there's, there's not that many doing that. So we've got to pray that God raises up people um, to fight against the darkness. And in the very next verse, very next chapter, Matthew chapter 10, it says, Jesus then sent his disciples out into the villages to do healing, to preach the gospel of the kingdom, um, and to bring justice. So the very same thing that Jesus was doing in chapter 9 he prays, it's overwhelming. Then he sends out the disciples. And basically what he's saying is, guys, this need is huge, and we need more workers, and guess what? You're up. It's your turn to go out and do this thing. And so the disciples, we know from the Gospels, we also know from the book of Acts, and we also know from early church history that the disciples gave their lives to this thing. And where they, where they brought, they, they sought out justice and healing and reconciliation. But one thing we also know about the disciples is they didn't fix it all either. A huge movement was, was, was beginning and, and building. But even in their, their, their numbers, they didn't fix everything, but they did make a difference. They did make an impact. In fact, we're here today because of the impact that they made in their lives. And what I think Jesus might say to us is the same thing, guys. You're up. Uh, the, the challenges are enormous, but we can't just shrink away from it. We can't just back down. We have to contribute and do what we can. In fact, Teddy Roosevelt says it this way. He says, do what you can with what you have where you are. And I believe that God has called all of us as followers of Jesus, if we're a follower of Jesus, to be a part of the work of reconciliation in our community, to be people that get out there and serve um, and, and act with courage, knowing that we can't fix everything, but that we can make an impact. Area 10 wants to be a church that's for the city. We don't want to just be the best church in the city. We, we want to be uh, the best church for the city. We want to be actively engaged in the, in, in the areas of, of brokenness in Richmond. Now, Richmond's an awesome city. I love Richmond. I love living here. It's, it's, to me, it's like the perfect balance between a huge city and a small city, right? Like it's all the cool like restaurants and events and stuff of a huge city, but not all like the crazy traffic. <laughs> um, so I love it because there's always stuff to do if I want to, and I can get there without pulling my hair out. Um, Richmond seem, it seems like a really well-balanced, great city. But even in how awesome it is, there's also a lot of brokenness. There's also a lot of frustrations. There's a lot of uh, disparity in some of the, the things going on with, with justice, with education, uh, with poverty. You can go down the line there. And so Area 10 wants to be a church that is for the city of Richmond, that's actively engaged in some of these areas of brokenness. And with that, we want to be intentional and also outward focused. And I just want to give you guys a quick breakdown and rundown of what that looks like for us at Area 10. The first thing I'd say for us is that we want to partner with existing organizations. We don't necessarily want to create new ones ourselves. 
we believe there's a lot of great organizations in Richmond that are serving these, these broken areas, and, and we have kind of vetted and gone through and, and, and made strategic partnerships with organizations that we believe in. When you came in, you're handed a brochure that has a list of our, our strategic partnerships within the city. So we partner with existing organizations. We don't necessarily spend sideways energy trying to create things or reinvent the wheel when it's already there, when there's already places for us to plug in and serve. Secondly, we also serve in a, a few key intentional uh, areas or categories of, of, of service. Now, for Area 10, one issue is, is education. We want to be focused on education. We also want to focus our energies on foster care and adoption, and we also want to focus our energies on poverty. Now, Area 10 defines poverty as broken relationships within ourselves, uh, with each other, with God, and with the rest of creation. So that's a pretty broad definition of what poverty is, but we want to uh, focus our energies on education, foster care and adoption, and also poverty, which looks like a lot of different uh, things. Now, not everything can be your top priority. You can't look at this brochure and say, I want to do everything for every organization. Like, that's not what a priority is, right? Like, if everything's your priority, then nothing's your priority. But we do know that like, God has, has, has called you and equipped you and gifted you and given you certain experiences in your life that when you see a need come up, you may be drawn to it. You may have a passion for it. God may be pulling you in that direction. So we want to create a flexible system where there's multiple areas of interest and you can serve in an area that you're passionate in. And with that, there's also different uh, stage levels of entry points into these organizations. Sometimes it's a one-time donation where we announce from stage, hey, we're, we're going to do this thing. And you, you buy something or uh, you, you give money towards something. And it's just a one-time donation type event. Another time, it may just be uh, a one-time event that you go to with an organization and you do like a field day or something like that. So it's a one-time event. And then the last piece would be just when you commit to regular service. Maybe it's weekly or monthly or just some kind of consistent relationship building um, level of serving with that organization. But we want to create a variety of, of connection points with different organizations that may um, fit your passion and your calling, but also give you different ways. Check. Um, that was tricky, man. I was like, oh, there's no mic there. Okay. Because we know that you guys have different seasons and in, in areas of... Um, of your life where you have a different amount of time to, to give up. So different uh, stages, different entry points for that. One thing I say too is I, I love Area 10. I love the people I've gotten to meet here, the friendships I've built, and I love how actively engaged we are in the city of Richmond. There's so many people involved in different ways trying to serve the community because of how Christ has impacted their life, because of how the church may have impacted their life, and they're going out and saying, we see some brokenness in the city, and we want to run towards that, not away from it. We want to run, run towards it with intentionality and with courage uh, and make an impact. So what we're going to do uh, next is we're going to have a few people on stage that, that, that I love that are going to come and share their experience as they serve and engage in the city. So you guys give a warm hand for uh, Matt, Maria, and Julie. And while I'm figuring out this battery thing, I'm going to let you guys introduce yourselves, and we're going to start with Matt. Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Matt Ontel. Uh, I moved to Richmond a little over 10 years ago from California. Um, I work at Microsoft in their customer experience programs, uh, and then have an amazing wife, Shannon, and a two-and-a-half-year-old, uh, Bryn. Um, and then I serve at Area 10 in the frontline ministry as a, a floater. And then I'm also on the board of directors for Grace and Peace Community Ministries. 
Um, hi, I am Maria Tackett. Um, I've been in Richmond and also at Area 10 for a little over six years now. Um, I'm a student at UVA uh, pursuing a PhD in statistics. So basically, I spend my day doing research or teaching, some combination of those things. Um, at Area 10, I'm on the Engage team, um, and then in the community, I tutor at UMFS, and my husband, Matt, and I are respite foster parents for Hope Tree Family Services. Hi, guys. I'm Julie Gassaway. Um, I've been at Area 10 about three years now. Um, I'm on the band, so if I look familiar up here, that's why. <laughs> Um, and also full-time, I work in administration at Embrace Treatment Foster Care, and um, also on the side through UMFS, I volunteer one-on-one -on -one with kids um, as a mentor and then a backup caregiver, which is essentially babysitting. Cool. Um, I had a lot of jokes I got to miss because the battery thing is a bummer. Um, I'll make one joke. Matt works at Microsoft, and he's always wearing this Apple Watch, and I'm trying to figure out what's going on. This dude's a big, he's kind, of, kind of a big trader there. iPhone in my pocket. iPhone in your pocket. Yeah. Um, so, so just to recap real quick, these guys serve in different areas in the community. Matt serves with Grace and Peace uh, community uh, in, in, in the East End. Maria today is going to talk about reconciliation, specifically uh, racial reconciliation, and then Julie works in foster care um, as her job, but also volunteers outside of that to, to, do, um, to do work with Hope Tree. Nope, 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 nope. UMFS. UMFS. You got it. Okay. <laughs> Great. Uh, so what was the catalyst that got you involved in the issue, uh, initially interested or involved in the issue? And Maria, we'll, we'll start with you. Um, yeah, so the catalyst for me um, was um, in 2012 when Trayvon Martin was killed. Um, so a combination of just the event of his death, but also the national conversation around it. Um, it was the first uh, time I was sort of old enough to be sort of conscious and also participate in like a big national conversation about race. Um, and one thing that just became apparent to me was there was just a huge tension in the conversation or like a disconnect. Um, and I started to realize that that disconnect was, um, as a society, we've sort of dealt with race um, through like desegregating things, so like desegregation laws, but we um, have not fully dealt with like the wounds of our country's uh, sort of history with race. Um, the analogy I think of is we've dealt with race by sort of putting a Band-Aid on things, so um, through desegregation laws, we sort of put a Band-Aid on the wound of race, and that's incredibly important, just like if you get a cut or something, the Band-Aid's important, but the Band-Aid's never the end goal. Um, the end goal is healing that wound underneath. Um, and so I'm not sure when I first heard the term racial reconciliation, um, but reconciliation just sort of in a biblical sense means seeking peace for all of God's creation. Um, and so in the terms of race, that is that healing that racial wound underneath, not just kind of the slapping the Band-Aid on top. And so since then, I've been on a journey sort of figuring out, like, what does this mean and what does this look like in my life? And so the legislation serves as like a safeguard. Like here's, here's a protection in the midst of the brokenness, but we need to address the issue of brokenness itself, get down to the root issue, and bring real healings, to, ideally to a place where we don't need legislation. We, you know, that's a different yeah. thing. But, mm -hmm. Great. Thanks, Maria. Yeah. yeah, so the catalyst for me getting involved was actually uh, one of the 
people who attend A10 here, uh, Sandra Lewis. So she's really at the core of Grace and Peace, uh, and it was her calling to go and be a missionary um, to Mosby Court and uh, Raven Street over in that uh, area, which is a public housing community in the East End. And so I met her through small group, and in hearing her story, it was really enlightening in two ways. One was just the need um, right in our own backyard, right down the street, you know, right across the highway, if you will, uh, or on this end of town, is our people who can uh, really use uh, uh, our service and also in, in turn help and, and serve us as well. But then two was the amazing um, things that were happening in that community. There were lives that were being changed, people breaking free of addiction, uh, people going on to complete high school and go on to college, um, women who were choosing um, life and choosing to keep their children. Um, and those kinds of life-changing stories and seeing how God was working there uh, really uh, led me to want to become involved and see what I could do to help. Thanks. So um, for me, the catalyst to get involved with foster care actually happened um, because growing up, I noticed a very large difference between me and a lot of the other women and girls in my life where a lot of my friends and whether or not in Christian circles or not, there was this very large longing to have their own kids someday. And I have never experienced that kind of longing. And um, because of that, I often felt that there was something inherently wrong with me, that I was broken in some way. And um, it was a very alien, alienating experience. And, um, and then in college, I made friends with someone who actually felt similarly, which was crazy because I had never met anybody like that. And um, she actually started working at UMFS. Um, and she told me that they needed volunteers. And uh, so I had never really known anything about foster care. Um, so I got involved as a mentor at first, um, and it just opened up this whole world for me. I just fell in love with these kids that, um, uh, just in a way that I had never really experienced before. And um, that just kind of showed me that maybe something I always had thought was a personal flaw was actually something that God designed inside of me to drive me in this direction in life. That's great. Uh, so what's something you've learned since being actively involved with, with this? We'll start with you, Julie. So something that I've learned um, in working with foster care is that I think we let fear and in terms of foster care, kind of social taboos that surround family and what family is supposed to look like and how you're supposed to work with families, we let fear control us and um, stop us from pouring out God's love and leaning into um, basically all of the potential impacts that we could have if we were to break free of that fear. Yeah, so for me, there's two sides to this coin. There's really kind of some of the positive things I've learned, and then um, I'll call them growth or kind of maybe some of the negative things in a way. Uh, so on the positive side, I think one thing that I was really surprised is just how much you can, uh, my own ability to be involved and squeeze things in. So between uh, work and family, and I'm also in school, you know, it's like, how am I going to be able to squeeze all this in and do it? And the thing is, is that you can make the time and you can do a lot more than you think you can. Um, but also the positive thing has been just seeing um, God work in the community and in the lives of those uh, that we're serving, and then also how we're being served by them. It's incredible. So the really have seen just things that are, can't be described other than miraculous, and so that has been amazing to learn and really just see firsthand. 
On the growth or negative side, um, if I'm really honest, I think it's been scary how much um, I harbor my own biases and prejudices. So it's been really enlightening to me. You know, I, I, growing up in California, you kind of think that uh, you, you have this kind of colorblind mentality that, that those things don't impact you. That's a, if a way a Southern thing and a, or something like that. You have these stereotypes. And then you go and you start getting involved and you realize that you have things to wrestle with in your own heart and ideas and, and these biases that just that go from being unconscious to more conscious. And so for me, it's been a great growth opportunity to um, just wrestle with those things that have come to, come to light through the process. Um, for me, I think the sort of big thing I've learned is that reconciliation is active. Um, we can't passively reconcile. And so just a couple of examples of what that looked like in my life, um, similar to um, what Matt has said, um, I think God revealed to me just kind of like my own junk, my own biases and prejudices that I had to deal with myself. Um, and so an example of that is uh, right after the Charleston shooting, um, I went on vacation and in the security line in the airport um, was this like young white male wearing um, camo pants and a black shirt and he had a blue duffel bag. And I say that only to like get you to see like I was really dialed into this guy. Um, and I had a visceral reaction to him. Um, he looked kind of nervous, he made me nervous. I just was like, I need to keep my eye on him. Um, and after kind of going through the security check, uh, about five minutes later, I see him with his friends or people he knew laughing and smiling and just instantly he became a human being to me. Um, and what God revealed to me in that experience is instead of appreciating this person as an individual, I was projecting onto him a lot of stuff that had nothing to deal, like anything to do with him. And so I had to, um, in that moment, sort of confess and deal with my own um, sort of biases and things um, that were going on in my own heart. Um, and I think the second thing is kind of similar to what Tommy was talking about, is that reconciliation can happen in just sort of our day-to-day -day lives and in our own sphere of influence. Um, and so like I mentioned earlier, I teach um, a statistics class. And um, one thing I noticed is that um, through the examples in the textbook and homework problems from the textbook, I was using um, whenever race came up, it was always in a way that was negative towards minority groups or was just perpetuating negative stereotypes. Um, and so once God made me aware of that, um, I essentially went through and you know, sort of cleaned up my um, examples and actually found a different textbook to use. So I would no longer use that textbook. Um, and that was just sort of one small way that I could um, sort of create a more reconciled environment or sort of seek peace for all of my students. Um, so just a way I could make an impact in my day-to-day -day life. Yeah. That's huge. And one thing I've seen as a theme with all of them sharing kind of answer this question is this idea that when I... Uh, begin to live out a life that's a little more courageously compassionate, meaning I'm willing to put myself in other people's shoes, in other people's perspective. Um, that's a scary place to be because it begins to expose some of the assumptions and stereotypes I had and biases that I had that aren't actually true. And we see that a lot in Scripture, even the, the Scripture I think Chris used last week with Peter in the book of Acts when he's like, I don't want to go hang out with this Italian dude because Italians, you know what, they're crazy. Um, and then he, went, then he went and hung out with the Italian dudes, they were pretty cool. Um, so when, when we act uh, courageously and compassionately, when we have the humility to kind of put ourselves out there and, and be in environments that we're not comfortable in, um, not because they're bad, just because that's not who we are used to being, um, it actually creates an opportunity to expose some weaknesses or some, some um, inconsistencies in our faith and our personality um, that create opportunities for growth. Um, and it's almost similar to the Band-Aid thing where the, the, the weakness was already there. It wasn't 
it just became exposed. Now that you're aware of it, you can be less scared of that weakness in yourself um, and begin to work through that and, and, and grow and strengthen your own faith. Um, and it creates a lot of possibilities when you stop being operating out of fear um, and operate out of humility and compassion. It creates this opportunity for connection. You can see the world, I think, a little, little more richly, a little more uh, full than maybe you had before. Um, so what's something that you want us to know that we might not know? We'll start with Matt. Yeah, so there's a few things that come to mind there. Is, um, the first is around this idea that Nicole and the Engage team, and then you heard Tommy talk about it around poverty, is I used to think of it very much as kind of this economic condition, kind of a, a, a simply around a money thing. And one of the things I've really learned is it's truly about broken relationships, about broken relationships between people and God and between people and other people. And so I've just gotten a, a much deeper understanding of what it is. But in doing so, it's also highlighted to me um, something that Chris and Tommy have talked about a lot from the stage uh, in Matthew 25, that we all kind of think of the, the scripture being uh, what you do to the least of these, when really it's the least one of these. And how our impact to have an impact on even that one starfish, so to speak, that you talked about earlier. Um, and the, for me, I used... Um, work and family and a lot of these things as an excuse to not get involved um, for things. I'd say, I don't have the time. I traveled a lot for work, uh, so I can't mentor or can't be involved regularly. So, you know, I'll just wait. And what I found is there are tons of organizations, a lot in your pamphlet and brochure and even ones outside of it, of course, that whatever your skill or whatever your talent is, um, there, there are places that you can plug in. So reach out to Nicole and say, hey, I'm really good at web design. I'm great at email newsletters. I'm great at you know, driving. If you can drive, you can serve, and you can help provide transportation to people who need it. And so there is just so many ways to serve, and it doesn't mean that you need to you know, take that step, like Tommy said, to uh, like get involved weekly or monthly. It can be a one-time thing. And so whatever your skills are, you know, as a as a member of the board of directors, a lot of what I do is more behind the scenes, accounting or finance and try and help sometimes with the web or like just anything in a way that's just kind of general operations um, while Sandra and some of the other volunteers are say in the community that I just don't have, um, that doesn't fit my abilities or time. So I just encourage everybody, don't use the excuses that I did because in doing so, you miss out on the opportunity. You know, I, I think that the opportunity for you to grow and for you to be uh, impacted and uh, by those that you have the opportunity to serve. That's great. Thanks. So when it comes to foster care, um, it's just something that I've really seen is uh, it's really shrouded in mystery and people don't even really know kind of what it, it is and even the people who do maybe have an idea, they often think that the only way they can be involved is foster parenting, which is certainly not the case. That's a much bigger commitment. Um, for example, I started off, you know, twice a month teaching a kid piano until he didn't want to learn piano anymore because it was more difficult. Um, and so then we started cooking. And um, now I am a backup caregiver, which is just essentially babysitting. And um, there's tutoring, there's respite care providing, which is something Maria does. And that's just when you take kids um, for the weekend, when their foster parents, you know, go on vacation or are sick or, you know, have to go out of town for something. Um, and so then even in foster parenting, that can really, um, you know, people don't know that, for example, you don't have to be married and the only age requirement is to be 21. Um, of course, you can have your own biological kids and foster. You can have a full-time job. Um, there, a, a lot of people think that they 
can't have any say um, in like what the kind of kids that they get, and that's absolutely not true. No one would ever make you um, take on kids that you you were not comfortable working with, or you know, were outside of your uh, kind of experience or desire. Um, and time commitment-wise, people seem to think that you have to be a foster parent for a certain amount of time. You can be a foster parent one time and then decide that it's not your skill set and it's not what you want to do, or you can do it for years and years. So, um, and, and even outside of foster care, because that's where my heart is, um, I would say anything that you feel pulled towards is probably potentially God pulling you in that direction. And fear and mystery and like not knowing is what stops us so often. But if you lean in and you go and ask those questions and find out more about it, you're going to walk into a, this whole other world of love, um, the ability to show God's love that you never would have been able to, I never would have been able to, if, um, if I hadn't leaned in in the way that I did. Um, I think sort of one, um, I guess like popular or common way to deal with race is just to not deal with race at all, um, which I guess would be taking like a colorblind approach. Um, and that comes from a really good place. Uh, I mean, it's a, if we think about the Martin Luther King quote where he says he um, has a dream that his children will live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin. Um, colorblindness seems like a logical conclusion to that. Um, but taking that approach actually hinders us um, from the reconciliation that we've been called to um, in a few ways. Um, the first is that when we um, take a colorblind approach, we sort of default to the experiences of the majority group or the majority culture. And so what that means for people not in that group is that their specific experiences or their uh, specifics about their culture get ignored. And so people not in the majority group miss out on the opportunity to be fully known. Um, and for the past few weeks, we've talked a lot about loving our neighbor and loving those around us. And part of that is fully knowing our neighbor and a fully appreciating our neighbor, um, even the parts that we don't understand or the parts that may be uncomfortable or get a little messy. Um, the second way is that when we take a colorblind approach, then the only time we talk about race um, is either out of tragedy or out of really high-intensity moments, and we've seen a lot of these um, in our uh, country the past few years. Um, and when we only talk about race in those moments, um, during those high-intensity moments, the conversation is not about reconciliation. The conversation is often about getting past the conversation. And so the reconciliation doesn't happen. Um, and so reconciliation is something that happens in the day-to-day, -day, not just um, out of tragedy or out of some sort of like high-intensity, high-emotional moment. Um, I also do want to point out that um, in Acts 2, um, the Bible takes care to um, lay out like countries where people are from um, and to acknowledge and celebrate their specific culture and ethnicities. And so I think um, the Bible acknowledges and celebrates differences. And so um, we should um, also celebrate and acknowledge difference as well. That's great. All right, guys, we thank them for their time. Yeah. Take your coffee. One thing I'll say is I, I know uh, Matt, Maria, and Julie pretty well personally, and they're just, they're just great people. Uh, they're also busy people with all in different seasons of life, and what I appreciate about them is that they're carving out time to, uh, to serve this community in, of Richmond and, and, and grow 
in these ways. And that, 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 that encouraged me because it means there's accessibility. There's ability for all of us to serve in some type of way. I think sometimes when you hear a sermon like this, it can just feel like a guilt trip. Like, great, thanks, Tom. You're trying to add one more thing on top of my already crazy, hectic, busy plate. And I want to encourage you guys, that's not what we're trying to do. What we're trying to do is almost since draw something out of you that's already there. This idea that, that this t-shirt says love compels us. It pulls us towards, uh, towards pursuing reconciliation and, and healing in our communities. And Paul says like this in, in 2 Corinthians, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And let me just unpack that for a second. If anyone is uh, a part of the kingdom of God because of Jesus, that means that Jesus has come into your life and he's began this work of reconciliation. You had poverty. You had broken relationship with God because of your sin, because of your junk, because of your pride, because of your arrogance, because of your resistance to the goodness or the grace of God. And Jesus came in and, 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 and he made a way for us to be reconciled to God, for that broken relationship to be restored. And because of that, you are now a new person. You relate to God and, and you relate to other people differently uh, as a follower of Jesus. So Paul says, if any of you are that, um, um, if any of you are in Christ, you are a new creation and God is calling you, he says, to be a minister of reconciliation. Because you have been reconciled with God, and for me, because I'm still being reconciled to God, it's a process. And because you're in that journey yourself of reconciliation between you and God and others, you're now an ambassador for Christ. You are now a minister of reconciliation. You are a part of the movement. You're up. It's your turn. It's your, it's your turn to be involved in, in bringing healing and justice and community and connection in the midst of brokenness and despair. Um, so if you're of Christ, this is your calling. Love is compelling you. As God works this thing out inside of you, you're also being compelled to outwardly express that love and that faith by bringing about reconciliation. And it happens in so many ways. We're trying to create a structure here at Area 10 where you can get plugged in with different strategic organizations in different levels and in different ways. I encourage you guys to, to look at that brochure that was handed out, to look at the organization, see if anything just triggers for you. And if it does, email Nicole Farr, who's our engaged director here at Area 10, at Nicole at Area10Church.com, and just ask for more information or ask how you can get dialed in connected. When Jesus um, went about his life, in fact, most of the stories we have in the Gospels are Jesus going about his life and then being interrupted. Most of the miracles, most of the healings that we have in the Gospels are in the context of interruption. There's one story where Jesus is in a house and he's teaching, and all of a sudden, like, the, like the roof literally comes down, and this dude comes down who's, who's, who's paralyzed, and Jesus heals him. There's other stories where he's walking from Galilee to Jerusalem to go to a feast, and someone pulls him aside or grabs him and says, man, I'm hurting, or my, my daughter's hurting. And Jesus often, maybe always, acted with compassion and healing and, re- and tried to bring reconciliation. When he saw areas of injustice in a city or in the temple or whatever, he called out, he pursued injustice. And most of these things happened when he was on his way from point A to point B. That's where the good stuff happens, guys. When, we're, when our lives get interrupted, if we're open to being interrupted and, and, and seeing brokenness where it's at and saying, I'm going to, to run courageously towards that because that's what Jesus did, because love compels me to do that, because I'm called to be a minister of reconciliation. Uh, the overall, when we look at the thing from a bird's eye view, it can be overwhelming because there's so much going on in our city, so much going on in our world and uh, uh, in our country, even in our families, it can just be overwhelming. And what God's asking us to do is to not be overwhelmed into inaction or overwhelmed into numbness. He's saying, act courageously. Do what you can where you can. Uh, Be engaged in the process of reconciliation in your communities. Let's pray. God, thank you for uh, this morning, just for the encouragement we've gotten from Matt, Maria, and Julie, just how they're taking risk and stepping out and and using their time and and their skill sets and their passions to 
to make an impact in Richmond and make an impact in people's lives. And I pray that you um, use those stories just to inspire us, not to intimidate us, um, but to say that we also, everyone in this room can, can do something, can, can be engaged in, in trying to bring about healing in their, in their relationships of influence, but also in this city, that they can ask questions and we can get uh, engaged and doubt into those things. So teach us how to honor Jesus and what he did for us and what he's doing in us. Teach us how to honor that by, by pouring ourselves out for other people and, and, and for courageously charging into the brokenness. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.